0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. I think we're now ready to begin 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a hotly debated passage um, where people are, I think all of us are tempted to one level or another to add in a lot of our own presumptions. Uh, We need to be cautious of what they call eisegesis, uh, which means reading your own ideas into the text uh, and rather do what is proper, exegesis which means to carefully expound what God has said. One of our first mistakes uh, that we often make is concluding that the opening verses of chapter 2 are given for the purpose of accurately predicting when the end of this age will come. Many make the same mistake when Jesus gives his all of it discourse, you find that in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. Uh, they take Jesus' statements, uh, uh, such as this one that follows. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Uh, there will be great earthquakes and plagues and famines, etc. etc. And by these conclude, well, that the end must be near. But, in Matthew 24 and verse 6, this same discourse, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' assertions are to the contrary. He says, see to it that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. So wars and rumors of wars, false Christs, persecutions, etc., etc., they are not useful to predict the end. Instead, they have proven to be characteristics of the entire church age. They're descriptive of the last 2,000 years, and Jesus warns his disciples so that they will not be frightened when these things occur. He didn't give them so that we can project the timing of his return, which he says repeatedly will actually sneak up upon you like a thief on a day when people are eating and drinking and buying and selling and marrying and and, and, uh, giving in marriage exactly as they were, Luke 17, verse 29, on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, and it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed Them all. So if you find yourself analyzing the evening news, looking at wars and earthquakes and plagues, uh, if you're looking at those as providing signs of the end, stop it. Stop it. And remember that Jesus said it is an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. And besides, no one, Scripture repeatedly says that no one has the capacity to interpret such signs to project the timing of the end. Uh, Jesus assures, Matthew 24 and verse 36, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone Uh, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. Back in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 13, Paul stated to Christians, instructing Christians like us, uh, concerning this same unfolding of end time events. He says, quote, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly and they will not escape. So this, this second coming of Christ, the parousia, again the same language we've been looking at uh, for several months now, uh, this coming of Christ that initiates the day of the Lord, it's completely unpredictable. Completely Unpredictable course, we we know we're still going to have our, you know, creepy religious fortune tellers uh, who will tell us, yeah, you know, no one knows the day nor the hour, but that doesn't mean they don't know the week or the month. Ever heard that one? Actually, it does. Because in Luke 12 and verse 35, Jesus tells his disciples, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit, means keep them lit all the time. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. And then Jesus turns to his own disciples, his followers, and says this, quote, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Folks, Jesus warns incessantly through the Gospels, throughout the Gospels, uh, that those who identify as His disciples are to remain ready every single day for His return. That's what it means to be dressed in readiness, always ready. Um, Folks, the Gospel of Luke, when we study this, it changed my life. The Gospel of Luke and Jesus' repeated declarations to be ready for his return completely changed my life. Every day, (laughs) I'm anticipating his return. And this means that nothing specific needs to happen before Jesus comes. Can return, Folks, Jesus can come today. Are you ready today? I'm ready today. No sign will ever exist for us to predict when Jesus will return. Rather, that day will look like any other ordinary day, marrying and giving and marriage, etc. Uh, therefore, Jesus' command is to always be ready always, all the time. Um, There are several reasons uh, why embracing what we call an imminent return of Christ. An imminent return of Christ. That meaning it could happen at any time. There are several reasons why embracing an imminent return of Christ is so crucial for the church. One is that too much of our Christian dialogue focuses on vainly attempting to predict the timing of when. People ask, how close do you think we are? Did you see the news last night? we got to be close, right? And so prophecy conferences are scheduled where Christians gather, speculating about the signs of the end of the age, rather than to confront the severity of our sin. Where does the war in Ukraine fit into the puzzle, it is asked. Well, about the same place that that Vietnam and the Spanish-American War and and, uh, the Peasants' War in Germany, uh, the continuing presence of plagues and wars... Only assure us of one thing, according to Jesus. The end has not yet come. Back in the 80s in high school, we used to say, duh. The fact all of this is still going on merely means the end has not yet come. A better investment of our discussion would include things like sins that we commit, and fervent commands of Christ that we omit but just try to uh, convince people to show up for an evangelism conference. Like, nah, I don't, that isn't my stripe. Our omission of the Great Commission is a much better topic of discussion rather than trying to read the signs of the end At minimum, at minimum, bare minimum, an evangelism conference could confess a sincere remorse for our refusal to obey our master. Even if nobody got saved, at least we could confess that we aren't doing what our Lord Jesus Christ has told us to do. Get that off our chest, and that's a place to start, uh, according to the prophets in the Old Testament. They always started there. Way too much time is wasted on trying to predict the end, uh, but providing signs to accurately predict the end is not what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 pertains to. There's a very successful pastor uh, out west somewhere uh, where virtually all that he has focused on for the last several decades is preaching through the book of Revelation. He's had some other side things he's done too, but basically the book of Revelation for decades. And his latest book, I see, boasts of, quote, signs and signals that will precede the end of everything as we know it. And all this type of speculation achieves is is convincing people that the day of the Lord is not imminent. Imminent. But rather, you know, a certain domino of events has to happen before he can come. Wait, um, spending decades predicting events that will precede the end has also accomplished one other thing it has also made that pastor very rich beyond imagination. Uh, So at least he's fulfilled one other Bible prophecy that they will collect a lot of money to themselves through ministry. One more thing fulfilled. This all reveals a problem. Problem. Not only do predictions of the end take time and focus away from priorities that the church should be focused on, uh, like evangelism, and, and speaking for myself here too, uh, purifying ourselves from sin, being conformed to the image of Christ, they take focus away from that and also make people incorrectly believe that Jesus just can't come until some domino of peculiar events happens first. It lulls people to sleep. Yeah, it can't be today, they say. One example in particular, that we will get to in the next couple weeks, is a reference to a temple in verse 4 that is used by some as just irrefutable evidence, they say, um, that a physical temple must be rebuilt in Jerusalem before the end can come. Um, But that is symptomatic of eisegesis, reading your own ideas into the text, uh, because that is not actually what verse 4 says. We'll get to that in a couple weeks, today I want to simply focus on Paul's reference to the apostasy, the Apostle Paul's reference to the apostasy, there's an apostasy that has to come first, before the return of Christ on the day of the Lord, there you're, you're thinking, there you go pastor, you're doing it. You just admitted something remains that has to happen before Christ can return. That's not what I said. You aren't listening. The Apostle Paul said the apostasy still had to occur at the time he wrote this letter, about 51 or 52 A.D. That does not ensure the apostasy has not yet occurred today. What we must determine is, have enough criteria already been met that reveal a religious apostasy has occurred? That's what we need to ask. In our passage, Paul did not provide these criteria for the purpose of predicting the end, but rather as evidence to Thessalonica, they had not missed the day of the Lord. It wasn't given to predict the end, it's just more evidence that they hadn't missed the day of the Lord, because they had been told by some corrupt sources that they had missed the coming of Christ. That's quite a different discussion, folks. Look with me at verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul writes, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the parousia, and our gathering together to him, that is the rapture, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So again, in in verses 1 and 2, we find more supporting evidence that Christ's return and the church's rapture occur on the day of the Lord. They're again grouped together. And Thessalonica had been told it's some corrupt source. We don't know what the source is. It isn't important for us to know, uh, either a spirit or a message or a letter, uh, they had been told the day of the Lord had already come. You've missed it. This is the error that Paul is addressing. And he's offering reassurance that the day of the Lord that he described in chapter 1 had not yet come, at least not yet in 51 AD as they were uh, receiving this letter. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Paul already provided sufficient evidence by describing the events of this day of the Lord in chapter one. He provided enough sufficient evidence in chapter one that the day of the Lord had not come. Because amongst other things, he said, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, along with mighty angels and flaming fire, retribution and judgment will be to those who do not know God, Uh, all of your afflictions will finally be relieved, etc., etc. So it is already firmly established in chapter 1 that the supernatural and cataclysmic events which surround our gathering together to meet him in the air... He's already established this is impossible to miss. It's impossible to miss the day of the Lord. Yet remember, most of the other letters in the New Testament had not yet been written in 51 AD. 2 Thessalonians is probably the third epistle. Maybe one gospel was out-circulated and complete. Um, Thessalonica didn't possess the, the wealth of information that we have throughout the whole New Testament uh, today, uh, but essentially, Paul says that if you find yourself living on Earth today, uh, you have not missed Christ's return. A theologian I quoted him a while back, named Bill Witherington III. Remember him? Yeah, Bill Will- Witherington III. Uh, he correctly observes this: "Quote Second Thessalonians does not provide a list of events." expected to precede the parousia, so as to enable the reader to say when Christ will come. It provides, rather, a proof that the day of the Lord had not yet occurred, even though some at Thessalonica apparently thought that it had. Paul, in chapter 1, had already given more than adequate evidence for every Christian of every age to know that Christ has not yet come. I mean, we're pretty confident of that. But additionally, he says, there will first occur the apostasy, the apostasy." The Greek term we translate apostasy means to fall away. It's a falling away. It can also mean to abandon something." My Greek lexicon offers this definition, quote, "It's the act of refusing to acknowledge or accept something especially religious beliefs. I'll read that again. The act of refusing to acknowledge or accept something, especially religious beliefs. A small number of sources propose this apostasy could describe a, a broad rebellion of all humanity um, Oh, there will be a broad rebellion when Christ returns. But most theologians I've read don't believe a general rebellion of all is in view. Um, That is not the apostasy. One of my better resources says, quote, usage in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So just think Old Testament. Usage in the Old Testament and elsewhere in the new testament gives this word a religious connotation apostasy we're talking about it points to a deliberate abandonment of a formerly professed position it is a, an abandonment of a formerly formally professed position it's a falling away the apostasy describes a falling away from biblical christianity In the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy in chapter 4, he says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Ooh. Before Christ returns, we should expect deceitful doctrines of demons. Well, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. It describes the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness. So there is one coming who will exponentially increase demonic deception, doctrines of demons, Well, that sounds like the work of an antichrist. By the way, this is very important. Paul consistently portrays deceitful doctrines of demons to include religious decrees like forbidding marriage and dietary restrictions. Those are deceitful doctrines of demons men who forbid marriage, and dietary restrictions. See that anywhere today? It indicates we are to watch out for false doctrine that creeps into the church. So don't conclude that these doctrines of demons and de- deceitful scheming and everything, don't conclude that we're supposed to be watching out for some forked tail, you know, demon with, with uh, laser beams coming off his eyes. Been watching too much Ghostbusters. We default to that. We think, oh, these, these are just gonna be really obvious. They're gonna be some demon looking things that, that are going to be deceiving people. And we, we think it's gonna be some supernatural, um, supernatural type phenomenon that you just can't miss. <laughs> That's not what deceit is. Deceit is that you miss something. We're not going to be able to identify the Antichrist by his appearance. We're getting ahead of ourselves. We're getting ahead of ourselves. This spiritual apostasy, or falling away in verse 3, it will occur in the church. And it will be doctrinal in nature. It will be deceitful and inspired by... A man of lawlessness. And the apostasy, it will be accompanied by activity of Satan. Verse 9 says, with all power and signs and wonders that are false. Again, verse 11, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. False. It's false. Verse 11 assures these signs are false. Twice in the passage, it's false. So these aren't genuinely supernatural signs and miracles and wonders they're be talking about. The Greek term for false, it's pseudos. You're familiar. It means lies. The apostasy is going to propagate a pseudo religion a pseudo christianity a false christianity that's what the apostasy is going to produce through deception of demonic influence and many people we are told are going to follow and believe these these false miracles My folks, pseudo-religion is everywhere today. It's everywhere. And when Christ returns, these people will say, but Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons? And in your name, perform many miracles? I can just see in television. I'm not even going to use Jesus' name in this way. But in the name, in the name, in the name. You ever seen any of that stuff? And they repeat Jesus' name in vain over and over and over again. In the name, they're saying. They get someone to step up out of a wheelchair and fall over backwards and proclaim miracles and wonders and all kinds of false signs. They perform false signs and false wonders. They're genuinely divine or supernatural like Jesus' healings. Uh, Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And as a result, a falsely professing Christianity, a falsely professing Christiana- Christianity, will arise, that will apostatize, that will fall away from the historic Christian orthodoxy that the apostles had preached. There's going to be a falling away from true orthodox Christianity. Orthodox means right belief. It'll be a falling away from apostolic teaching. And inspired by the Antichrist... The apostasy is an abandonment of scriptural doctrine. Abandoning scripture, abandoning doctrine, abandoning everything that the apostles had written. How can we know that? Well, the apostle John wrote in 1 John in chapter 4 this, quote, by this you know the spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So a manifestation of the Antichrist in this deceit was already in the world even when the Apostles were writing the Scriptures. And how did John say that we can recognize doctrine of demons inspired by the Antichrist? You might say, well, first glance, all of us would default to this. First glance, um, it appears that since the Apostles confessed Jesus Christ has come in the flesh that the Antichrist must insist that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. You ever followed that track? I have. The the Antichrist must insist that Jesus didn't... The incarnation, denying the incarnation of God in Christ. Um, So that must be how we recognize his work. The spirit of the Antichrist denies Jesus came in the flesh. And as a result, we keep an eye out for any... Deviation out there uh, that denies the incarnation, and, and we conclude, well, this is how we'll spot well, this is how we'll spot him. But that's not actually what John warns us to be aware of. Rather, he says the spirit of the antichrist does not confess Jesus. They don't preach Christ. That doesn't mean they don't take Jesus' name in vain several hundred times in one message. It means they don't confess apostolic doctrine and truth about Jesus. Instead, they preach just about everything else. But the question is not yet answered. How do we spot? How do we spot? How how do we identify the work of an Antichrist? I'm glad you asked. Because the Apostle John tells us In the same passage, to spot the spirit of the Antichrist, John provides the following contrast between false prophets and Jesus' original 12 apostles. The different teaching. He gives a contrast of false prophets and the teaching of the 12 apostles. This is what he says. Wow, this is something. John says they are from the world therefore they speak as from the world and the world listens to them but concerning the apostles and true apostolic doctrine John continues saying we are from God he who knows God listens to us he who is not from God does not listen to us By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How do we recognize false teachers who propagate the spirit of the Antichrist? One major indicator. The world loves them. The world listens to them. That means the world which consists of spiritually... Unregenerated people. Degenerated people. The world consisting of unsaved people will flock to their churches to listen. The world listens. Because they speak as from the world. And the spirit of the Antichrist proclaims a pseudo-religion, a pseudo-Christianity, while remaining very careful to never say anything that will alienate their audience, John says they speak as from the world. That means the conversation is geared toward the world. Oh, what are the world drawn to? Houses, cars. Success, prestige, influence, etc., 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 etc. And the world will want to learn from the preachers strategies of how to attain and enjoy more of this world. Folks, we're not talking about enjoying a couple weeks of vacation. Rather, the pseudo-church will, will nurture an inspiring discussion about how to enjoy your best life now. in contrast to a biblical discussion. As Jesus said, to sell your possessions and give to the poor, turn away from your sin. Take up your cross and follow me, says Christ. That is a discussion that the world refuses to have. They say, we don't want anything to do with that. They won't listen to a pastor who insists there will be no sex outside of wedlock. Why would they? When they can walk across the street to another location that just says, you know, love is love. All you got to do is love. Besides, that place across the street, they probably have better parking, surely better coffee. The people probably drive nicer cars over there. Why they're growing like crazy. Their pastor even has one of those cool peace stickers on his bumper, right? It's the world. And an apostate church is one that has abandoned Christ's mission to sanctify and make self holy, but instead strives to make people comfortable in the world in which they live, help you to fit, help you to enjoy everything in the world. The apostasy is going to include the promise of a purpose-driven life that appeals to all and teaching that can even apply to the unbeliever. Its message will be attractive rather than offensive to pagans. Books will be even written about heaven that never tell a person how to get there. And the largest church movements will be ones that decline to call sinners to repentance and trust in Christ. The apostasy had not yet occurred when Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians in 51-52 A.D. But it must happen before Christ returns. What you discern, what you have to discern is whether or not we are still waiting for the apostasy or has it already occurred? Are the majority of churches across America and around the world steadfastly defending sound doctrine or are they attempting to allure the world? Have they adopted the value system of the world? Have they embraced the sexuality of the world? Do they speak as from the world and does the world listen to them? Do they get invited on to Oprah? I could go on and on. I could go on and on. You know where I'm coming from, uh, making a case that the apostasy has already occurred. Um, I don't believe I have to. I don't think I need to go further. One of Satan's biggest lies, his biggest line of deception, is that man's behavior has to get much worse before Jesus will come. It may get worse, in fact, the longer Christ delays, the worse it will get. It could spiral worse. I'm not saying it can't get worse than it is today. Don't take me wrong. What I want to ask is, does it have to get worse? Folks, we have had our, we, we have our whole lives, we have been um, subjected to a severely distorted view of mankind. Since as long as we could speak and listen... We've had our lives subjected to a severely distorted view of man. We think that man is better than he actually is. We've confused technological advancement with moral improvement. Technology has not advanced man morally, man, through the use of technology, has morally digressed. depravity, depravity, human depravity has advanced along with technology. It's not better. Man is as bad or worse than ever. We have no compelling evidence from the Bible that would suggest that the moral behavior today is better than Sodom or Gomorrah. Actually, we're probably the same or worse. I also see nothing around us to convince, to be convinced that the earth is less less corrupt or less violent than it was in the days of Noah. Folks, society is corrupt and filled with violence, theft murder, war, deception, immorality of every kind. Does it really have to get worse? For the church, the absence of apostasy reassured Thessalonica that the day of the Lord had not yet come in 51 AD. The church had not yet fallen away. But apostasy in the church today assures us that the time for Christ's return is ripe, we're not still waiting for an apostasy. We're waiting for Christ. And there's only one way to escape the wrath that is to come. Uh, Man is not morally good. Folks, man is a pretender of being good. Man pretends to be good. We've been told since we were children... Act nice. Be good. Then we become self righteous. Some of us have learned to act really religious. We think that if we haven't murdered anyone, we're a pretty good person. But while we are not good, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God, by comparison, He's holy, He's perfect, He's pure. Sin can't enter his presence. It needs to be atoned for. We we can't just come to Christ as ourselves, or come to God as ourselves without the mediator Christ. The Lord's an all consuming fire. Before coming into God's presence, we have to first be made perfect. And Christianity, when proclaimed rightly, is a religion that makes God's people holy. It makes us holy. Through the perfect righteousness of Christ, we become holy. And if there is a practical lesson in our passage today, it is this. We who are truly born-again Christians, we are under an enormous amount of pressure to compromise doctrine today. All in the name of love, but love isn't expressed through compromised doctrine apostasy is. So when the apostate church is flourishing and succeeding in the eyes of the world, we must continue to stand firmly for the Word of God until Christ returns.